we just had the biggest demand shock. We laid off 30 million employees and mm-hmm. our wages increased. Mm-hmm. When, when, I, when I saw a statistic, I'm like, how the hell did that happen? What does it mean, Ravel? <laughs> <laughs> told you that we were gonna do less <laughs> all right how was that so that was cutting that that was gonna be our <laughs> intro music but luckily uh this is a shout out i wanted to give for the past couple episodes uh we have our friend josh karnofsky who did the uh revamp of our intro music to make it sound intro music to sound better so if you noticed that in the last couple episodes that's uh that's all josh i'll give you a his uh, details in the description to give him a follow. And uh, thanks, Josh, for helping us out. We have another friend with us today, Rogo. He's going to be talking to us about some things on his mind. We're happy to have him back. He was a guest uh, a bunch of episodes ago. And so, uh, you know, he killed it. So we decided uh, it's time to bring him back on. And uh, Rogo, how you doing? Thanks, Sean. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm happy to be on the Do Less podcast. Always, always good to kick it with you guys. Nice. All right, Dale, take it away. Yeah, happy to have you. Welcome back, listeners. So, Paul Rogo Rogowski, welcome back to the pod. Um, <laughs> I know you wanted to uh, you wanted to focus on the supply chains today. Um, I'm going to kick it to you just to kind of give us a, an intro on, on where your head's at. And what do you think? Something that the that the listeners need to be need to be thinking about and focusing on. Yeah, so I uh, I told Brandon, Jeff, and John I, I wanted to come on to the podcast. I'm an avid listener, and there's been a lot of discussion about uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy on this, on this podcast, and how they contribute to inflation. And uh, there, there's also another piece of our economic puzzle that's going to be contributing to inflation, and that's our our supply chains and we're dealing with a huge impact on demand from COVID uh, and a lot of companies, a lot of industries out there readjusted uh, their supply and their industrial capacity downwards and as a result of reduced supply, reduced capacity uh, and an oncoming demand increase due to reopenings, I think that will exacerbate exacerbate inflation on top of all the monetary and fiscal sim- stimulus that we've seen in our economy. So just one quick like, clarifying on what, what you're saying there is, so during during the pandemic, there are a lot of different products that people, some, some things people bought more of, and there are problems in, in supply chains producing more of, like toilet paper, and there's other items that people are buying much less of uh, that companies then had had overproduced and had inventory that they couldn't move and so they stopped their their production of certain products that weren't being purchased during the pandemic and now when we reopen those uh the supply chains aren't going to be ready to produce uh, at the level of demand that's going to come back online correct so uh let me start with a pretty simple 
industry. Wait, Rogo, uh, before you get into that, I want to yeah. ask you a question. This is something that um, we've, I think we covered on maybe an episode a while ago, but if not, I kind of want to present a concept, which is, um, so a lot of people, you know, look at the, the CPI data that comes out, which we just got a print today, which was actually hotter than expected. I don't know if we'll get to that. I don't know if you guys followed that or whatever, but I don't really even follow the CPI very closely because I think it's a, it's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that everyone hangs up on the, the CPI number and, um, you know, oh, during COVID, it was like basically nothing or it was like 0.3, whatever percent inflation. It's like, but there's this concept of, you know, inflation versus deflation. When you have a, a deflationary shock like the coronavirus, um, you know, you'd expect to see massive a massive number of deflate, you know, negative inflation. Um, but we never saw that whilst we had massive money printing. So there's a kind of school of thought that even though you don't see inflation in the number, like people say, oh, there's no inflation, it's 0%. It's like, well, what otherwise would have been deflation from a deflationary shock was papered over with artificial demand, with stimulus checks, with quantitative easing, infinity. It's like, so that print, that zero print was actually a papered over massive negative print, you know, with all this money printing, we printed 0% inflation. So that's a, what otherwise would it have been? Would it have been negative 10%, you know, from an actual deflationary shock? Do you kind of uh, have any kind of thought on that? Or is that um, something that you believe or do you hang up on the CPI number? Yeah, I think the CPI is, it gives you a directional estimate, but you, you guys, I think you've touched on this in previous uh, podcasts. It's missing fuel and food. Yeah. What percent of your income goes to that? Right. So, <laughs> that's, uh, th those are important details, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. What, what are the, to your point, what are the components of inflation and what's driving What's, what's driving that number? Uh, if we stripped out monetary policy, what would that number have been? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to have a good answer on that. All, all we could really tell is after the fact, but uh, you, you'd have to crunch the numbers and kind of separate that out. Right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and that's actually exactly the point because it's like people want to say, uh, like what I'm saying, like, oh, otherwise it would have been this or that. It's like, well, you'll never know. Like you, it's, that's economics. Like you'll never know. You can't do a controlled study with like CPI on the scale of a country. Like, it's just like, there's no, um, so I, it's just, it's just so interesting that people like, they mark every tick on the CPI. Oh, this was due to that. This was due to that. It's like, no, you don't know. <laughs> Nothing is able to be determined from, uh, you know, a, a series of controlled experiments that'll lead to, uh, you know, the uh, correlations that lead that can actually imply causation. So, sorry to cut you off. You you're going to go into like a specific sector of supply chain. Uh, yeah. Well, let's just go into tr travel, for example. Uh, so I'll, I'll dive into three areas. You got rental cars. You got air air uh, uh, air air travel, and then you have um, uh, Ubers. So let me start with rental cars. Hertz and most rental cars companies shed hundreds and thousands of 
of vehicles from their fleet. No one was using them. And that was their way to generate cash during a downturn when their, uh, their demand declined by 90%. Not easy to get those cars back when, when demand is up 50%. They, they prepared for a 90% demand increase. So right. if you guys have been reading about it in the news, rental prices are through the roof uh, for people traveling. So that just brings up my point. We had a big demand shock, and for those industries that adjusted their supply accordingly, we are going to see big price increases as a result. And bringing that capacity back online is going to be a challenge. Do you so, think, so, um, sorry, uh, I was going to say, yeah. do you think like if a company like Hertz wasn't so deeply in debt, they wouldn't be so strapped for cash and wouldn't have needed to shed so much of their inventory in this recession? Like, would you say like, that's going to be a contributing factor to the demand shock. Like I can imagine, let's say every company's flush with cash, then you have a huge demand shock and they can just kind of weather it out because they're not, they don't really need the cash immediately. Hertz doesn't yeah. need cash because they just filed for bankruptcy and their stock goes to the moon. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, that's a fair question. Uh, so you could drive that two ways you, you have your monetary policy where you're just pump, pumping pumping money into the co- uh, economy and it's easy to take up debt but if we look at what happened to the banking industry in 2008 our solution to that was to regulate them you have to have this amount of working capital you have to have this amount of reserves for a rainy day no other industry has that mm-hmm. so I, I think coming out of the coming out of such a huge demand shock there, there might become questions about that and mm-hmm. we haven't seen that so far which depending on your point of view might be positive or negative we could discuss that but that's a that's an alternative solution to to regulate how much debt you can take on and how much capital you have for a rainy day i'll speak so, anecdotally uh, specifically on transportation, I've taken, I think, two rental cars in the past, like, three months. And both of them were just, one of them was way overpriced, and it was kind of a normal experience. The other one was a little overpriced, but just at, at a terrible experience. I, I was, like, <laughs> they were understaffed. I, like, had to wait in line to both get the keys to the car and to drop off the keys, which I've never had to do. It was just, like... So that that might be that might show up as the precedent change for that specific company, but now they're staffed like maybe one third of what they have. It. So I just had just a terrible experience with it. So that well, won't show up in the number, a, but that's another thing that companies do, right? Is like there's this kind of uh, thing behavioral economists have seen, which is that prices are sticky, meaning that like consumers and mm-hmm. employers and everyone tends to resist price changes. But what one thing you can do is essentially reduce the quality and keep the price the same. And that's just a different way of raising the price. So like like you just, just cost said, you're, right, your, your experience is far worse. And that may not show up in like a CPI measure of inflation. But at, at its heart, essentially, your purchasing power is reduced because you've got a much worse experience for the same okay. uh, price. So, Rogo, going back to your, your example on renting these cars, um, so what you're saying is, you know, Hertz rent a car, 
it doesn't have enough demand during the pandemic for their car rentals. So they offload a bunch of their, their cars. They sell a bunch to get immediate cash. Now, as people are coming back and want to rent cars again for travel, uh, the supply is now short. The demand is now, you know, jumping back. And so they are able to charge a much higher price for their rental cars. Why can't that process then reverse itself in the future and uh, adjust such that Hertz is now making a higher profit on their, their car rentals that they raise their prices on, and thus they have additional capital that they're then willing to spend on the repurchasing of cars to inc- increase their supply to meet the demand and then uh, rebalance the pricing? Um, is it, would, that, would that not suggest you know, a scenario in which it's just a temporary spike in pricing uh, due to a lack of supply matching the demand uh, that can then be re- a reversal of that same process. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not, I don't want to say it's easier to shed assets than it is to gain assets, but there is a lead time to build, build back your fleet. Mm-hmm. So whatever that lead time is to get back to 50%, 80%, 100% of what their previous fleet would what was whatever the discrepancy so they get back to 50 percent of their fleet it takes it takes them two three months to get back to 50 percent of their fleet but it demand is 80 percent of what it used to be that 30 percent gap it's it it makes a big difference so uh so it depends on the lead time dale to your question Mm -hmm. uh and that might be months that might be years it depends on the industry and what you're buying uh, and so in that gap, so we might be seeing in certain, for certain goods, six months of big price increases, or we might be seeing two years of big price increases. It depends on how, how expensive it is, it is to build those assets. I would add, um, also at that point, the, that company that's in flux is a, it's kind of at the hands of the bid ask spread. So the car market isn't, is, isn't super liquid. So when they're selling, they're selling at the ask, and when they're buying, they're buying at the bid. So they're kind of whatever, however, however illiquid the car market, which during the pandemic, I um, was it. I might, I might be thinking of something else, but but um, regardless of that, the whatever you sell it at, you're going to buy back at a higher price to try to get the same kind of quality. It's just the way yeah. the market works. And. Jeff, we, we were t- we were talking about how you have zero beers in your house earlier. If you're at the supermarket, <laughs> there's five beers, and uh, there are ten people that want those beers. The the price is going to be a lot different than if there's only five people that want those beers. So that it, having a seller's market versus a buyer's market, what we're seeing here is in a lot of industries, it's a seller's market as a result of not having the capacity to meet demand. And irresponsible on Jeff's part for not keeping them inventory <laughs> stocked when yeah. it comes to beers. I mean, when you guys said we were going to be talking about inflation, I thought we were going to be talking about inflation of UFO sightings. So, I mean, my, my notes are fucking useless. Which have inflated during the pandemic. I just saw uh, yeah. an article on that. I think so, it's I don't know. I'm just I'm ill-prepared across every aspect. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll... Uh, I'll touch on air travel and Ubers. Air, air travel quickly, and then we'll go into Ubers. Uh, air travel is also an asset-intensive business that hasn't come back uh, as quickly, but 
buying airplanes is going to take time. And a lot of those companies, I mean, people are going to want to travel now. We just talked about rental cars and airplanes have a even longer lead time. So it hasn't happened yet, but, or it hasn't happened to a great degree yet, but I, I see airfares going up big time. Uh, and then there's assets that are pretty cheap to, uh, pretty cheap to, to gain. So if you think about an U- Ubers, uh, Ubers are just people in cars and really it's just people. You just need to be recruiting people to uh, be driving on the road with the cars that they already own. Uh, and what we're seeing is that th- there's not enough supply of Uber drivers to meet the to meet the new demands. Uh, yeah, also anecdotally, I um, the past <laughs> couple of Ubers I tried to take were just like, I would like check the price and then I didn't get it and then I checked the price 10 minutes later and it was double. This was at, after landing in an airplane. So I guess everyone's checking the price at the same time. And it, I just like watched it double in front of my eyes. I actually took a taxi. I haven't taken a taxi in whatever, <laughs> five years. <laughs> and I was like, the taxi was cheaper than the Uber, which is like, hasn't been the case in a long time um sorry to cut you off yeah i, I was in boston and i literally could not find a single uber the whole time i was there <laughs> yeah it's crazy well that's because you were looking for an uber there you got to find an uber, <laughs> <laughs> uber. <laughs> yeah. and that it, it seems i think with the pandemic that's also not just a, a pricing problem but i think people are also like less less willing to have strangers get in their cars uh yeah sure the pandemic yeah. Um, but Rogo, your airline example seems like it's uh, an attempt. It's like a parallel example to the rental car uh, example, but I think it's a little bit less intuitive to me um, because I don't understand who would be a buyer of commercial airplanes. Um, I would imagine only other commercial airlines who are competitors would be buyers of commercial airplanes. So, who do they offload airplanes to? Yeah, good question. So the um... So when, let's say Delta, they don't need as many narrow bodies to be flying domestically from Atlanta to whatever destination there is. Uh, so they need. So what they'll do is they'll first get rid of their more expensive, their the older aircraft in their fleet that are more expensive to maintain. Uh, so 737s built in the 90s, for and example. Get rid of them how? So yeah, so they'll just stop flying them. So they'll they'll go to a graveyard, usually in a dry climate like Arizona, and they'll just strip them down uh, and sell the, ass, the sell the aircraft off for parts. So they'll try to find a buyer, but in a depressed market, you won't, and you'll strip it down for parts. And when another aircraft, a newer aircraft, needs those parts, they're available they're available in the aftermarket. Now, yeah, like, go ahead, if Jack. I could add something, um, I feel like some people might be thinking, oh, why don't they just, you know, stow them away for later use? Well, it's because that has a cost to it. And, like, storing it at a graveyard where, you know, it doesn't need to come back in, you know, great condition to be fl- flown again is much, much cheaper. You can basically just offload the thing, uh, you know, for no cost to you versus, you know, if you wanted to actually store it somewhere you know you'd have to make sure it's you know in like a in controlled environment that's you know it's not taking damage all that stuff if you want to pull it back out for use again and like 
the real estate for something like that would probably be pretty expensive. I don't know much about the airplane market, but generally, you know, storing assets has like physical assets has significant cost. And if the demand's just not there and they don't have the cash flow, they can't afford right. to do that. So even just getting rid of it at a zero revenue right. is still reducing your costs uh, right. substantially enough that it could be beneficial. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, they're, they're shedding assets from their fleet, but they're going to have to bring back new assets. They're going to have to buy it uh, from Boeing Air, uh, Airbus in the future to replace those mm -hmm. assets. They don't have those orders on their books now. So uh, usually in asset-intensive uh, industries, the the boom and bust times are and being in a more are, are usually more cyclical so during good times it's they're really enjoying record profits and then in down times uh, they they swing to huge losses and being an airline being an aircraft manufacturer is certainly two of those industries now with airlines specifically I know that that was a sector that was specifically targeted targeted by the PPP program and like the CARES Act so do you think, I don't know if you can speak, you know, like to what actually happened or the actual logistics of that? Because I don't know, I know certain money from the PPP was earmarked, like this money will go to the airlines that maintain 75% of their staff or whatever, whatever it was until like whatever, whatever date, October 1st. I don't know the specifics, but I do know that there was money into that sector specifically. Now, do you think that that money actually kind of redirected the logistics of that deep or the plane uh, going to the graveyard process or does that money stop that or do they continue the same process and just pocket the money that what other because I don't think money was actually earmarked for maintaining inventory but uh, you know I can imagine that if I was an airline and I didn't have any demand and I was getting money pumped into my company, I would just continue to deplane my my fleet and then just pocket the money that I was, because I can use that money later to buy new planes, for example, if I do need them. Yeah. My impression was that money all goes towards paying the salaries and the benefits of their Staff. employees as opposed yeah. to furloughing them. So I don't think they, they, they certainly benefit in that they don't have to fire or, or sever as many people. Uh, but I, I don't think that impacts the, the asset decisions uh, right. because they're going to uh, they're going to be incurring huge costs just from letting them sit idle, yeah. regardless of the decisions on the people side. But uh, we could talk about a little bit about the ramifications of protecting the airline industry versus, for example, something like Uber. Uh, so the government discourage tra uh, airline travel. So th the logic there was to uh, pay for the workers impacted. The, the government would pay for workers impacted. So they're going to have less uh, cost in trying to hire back their employees. Uber just, I think a week or two ago, announced that they have to spend $250 million to hire back uh, or to incentivize drivers to get back on the roads. That's crazy. So right, right now, there, Jeff, you you might have paid a sixty dollar Uber versus a thirty dollar Uber, and 
Uber might be pocketing all that, or the drivers might be pocketing all that, but Uber's costs are going to go up with all the recruiting expenses, all the, they, they have to increase the wages of their drivers. So it's not just padding the pro, inflation doesn't just pad the profit margins of the producers. It also impacts, uh, it also increases their cost base. And you could see that in increased hiring cost and increased cost of building back, building your assets back up. Yeah, it seems to me though that with sufficient sort of rainy day fund kind of capital, if people actually had that sitting around, you could avoid a lot of these issues. And it seems like there's just dead weight loss by all of this, right? Because it's like, like you said, if you're sending planes to a graveyard and then building new ones, that's just dead weight loss, right? Like you're getting rid of planes that could have been still flying in the air and then building entire new ones to replace them. And, uh, you know, et cetera, with Uber, like people are quitting and then now you have to incentivize them just to come back. It's like, well, if that had just continued on at steady state or whatever, you know, just had a divot, but the divot was just minor, then, you know, you'd avoid a lot of these costs. But I think the fact that there's like this deadweight loss here, then prices just go up and quantity does not. So we just ultimately have that inflation from the supply shock, uh, in that sense. Yeah, I think uh, what we're kind of circling around is one one issue that Robo was kind of touching on was the fact that certain industries like the airline industry have these huge fluctuations in really high, highly profitable periods and then high loss periods when demand falls. Um, and what they're not doing, which is kind of something that was like a, we talked about earlier, was addressed during the banking crisis, is you know once we realized these banks weren't keeping like the necessary working capital on hand, and that thus they couldn't like cover their losses and deficits when the market really turned sour. Um, similarly, like the airline industry is going to have like hugely profitable years, but they're not going to like set aside a war chest of cash for potential down year, uh, you know, negative cash flow years in the future. Um, so when a, a huge pandemic hits, um, you know, and we're, de- we're deciding to subsidize that industry with government funding, uh, yes, there's some obvious benefits to the consumer in that, you know, airline prices didn't significantly spike as a reduction of, as a result of the reduction in, in you know, supply of flights. Yet, uh, we have to question what kind of incentive structure we're creating for these big airline businesses. Uh, such that we're telling them, you know, if the if the market really crashes for you, we want American citizens to still be able to fly at a reasonable price. So, yeah, you didn't put enough cat working capital on hand over the last 10 years of profit, but that's okay. You know, we'll bail you out. We'll give you some cash to to keep your employees uh, hired. Um, moral hazard. So, <laughs> yeah, to me, so to me, there's no and, question. And I think that, that's moral hazard right there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the the solution that we implemented in the banking crisis was to like regulate these banks and require them to keep a certain amount of capital on hand. Um, but I'm sure you guys wouldn't suggest that regulating the airline industries <laughs> to do the same thing is the solution. Well, what I would say is they've been incentivized beforehand to act the way they're acting. You know, they anticipated probably bailouts. They anticipated lower interest rates to allow them to borrow to rebuild their you know their assets like they anticipated all these things and so they didn't set aside 
capital because they didn't fear bankruptcy. Exactly. You know, Boeing was like, oh, we're at risk of bankruptcy, but they didn't fear it because they knew they would get helped out. Um, and so, like, the moral hazard is not, occur- it doesn't occur when you observe it, it occurs beforehand, right? Like, when people are essentially operating improperly according to incentives you added into the system. And so, obviously, we can't go back and fix that. But just doubling down and saying, well, we're already here and we can't let Boeing fail. I don't know. To me, that hole is only going to get dug deeper. I don't, I don't see that as a viable solution to just keep doubling down on these policies. Yeah. So maybe the the solution was like the, the bailouts to certain industries are causes moral hazards but Mm -hmm. what would you say to those workers that uh would lose their jobs during the bankruptcy process and just this uh, any sort of demand shock that we could foresee in the future i would say in the long run they'd probably i mean so every there's always winners and losers right and so like whenever you do a bailout you're just essentially socializing costs but it's like, you know, there's, it's not perfectly efficient, right? So whatever cost those workers are bearing because of a demand shock or what have you, like, obviously COVID's no one's fault except maybe some lab in Wuhan. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's difficult when, you know, you can't foresee these things and it's nobody's fault, right? But a lot of things are nobody's fault. And so I don't, I, I don't think that's like even relevant to talk about. Um, but if you just socialize these costs, you're not going to have perfectly efficient transfer of uh, the cost borne by these people gets translated to all these people, nor should you even really want that because if we just start socializing all the costs that every individual is going to bear, then people aren't going to retrain themselves if they need to. Like sometimes, like the airline industry is probably not going anywhere. It's probably not changing in a big way as a result of COVID, but you know, if the film industry with like Kodak cameras went away and you're, I don't know, a film developer or whatever, I don't <laughs> totally know what is in that industry, but like certain jobs need to go away and you need to retrain yourself to do something else. And if you're incentivizing people not to do that, it's ultimately we're all just going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I, I could see someone countering with, Oh, that's insensitive. Like, <laughs> people lost a job due to something outside of their control and in normal times in a healthy economy if you're in a structurally declining industry or, or such structurally declining company you could find something that's structurally increasing or retrain yourself but when everyone's dealing with misfortune it's a little more challenging uh, and right I, I, I would tend to agree with you more on the side of hey let let's do less and maybe protect the American worker a little less to prevent the moral hazard issues. But, uh, that's probably, probably, there's certainly a counter argument to, uh, that, that not a, there's a substantial portion of the population that might disagree. Right. Well, let me add like another aspect of it. Right. So like you said, there's a demand shock and people aren't traveling they're not driving ubers they're not doing all these things um but now suddenly there's a ton more pressure on 
other industries to produce more, I don't know, more deliveries, more whatever, what have you. Those people need to reallocate to those other industries. And if you socialize the costs by essentially reducing the profits in other industries to bail out these industries that are less needed, then you're slowing the progress of people being able to adapt to the changing demands of the society, right? So it's, it's, it's just making all of us worse off in general. Um, even though like you're helping a few people, you know, a few people are gonna be better off. I would say there's on net, you're destroying more, you know, well-being for more people. Yeah. So I think just to put that into like a really simple example. So let's say like, you know, obviously like demand for hard paper newspaper has gone down significantly, but mm-hmm. does have some social good for like spreading knowledge, right? Um, if demand for newspapers goes down significantly, that doesn't mean that we should like subsidize, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post to continue operating people to work at their printing plant so that a bunch of stacks of newspapers can like sit idle in in an inventory somewhere unread. Um, But rather we we should allow those businesses. Newspaper printer go burr. (laughs) (laughs) So you should allow those businesses and employees to, so one option is allowing those businesses and employees to, you know, maybe go bankrupt or struggle or lay off people. And then, you know, they're going to have some seriously negative effects, at least temporarily, they're going to be forced to go find some industry that has some demand in some new, uh, you know, employment. Um, but at a minimum, uh, one perhaps better solution is rather than, you know, bail out the airlines to say like, hey, keep everything status quo. We need these big airlines would be potentially to uh, instead divert that money to like retraining of employees or like some temporary like unemployment benefits or something that goes directly to the individual who then needs to, you know, reallocate their labor as opposed to. Uh, the big businesses keeping their employees whether or not they need them. Yeah. So I want to I want to answer that I want to answer the question too. So what 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 would you say to that person or to the to the um, the people that are kind of shit out of luck during a pandemic um, and you say no no we can't subsidize your industry you're going to be without a job what I what I would say to them would be um, it's like all right so you're down on your luck which is it's actually not your fault, you know, and it happens and I I feel bad, you know, I want to help you or you need help essentially. It's like, so who do you want to help you? Right? You have two options. The first option is, uh, the people who have won the popularity contest and have a money printer, right? That's their, that's their, uh, at their disposal. The other, the other group that could help you is the people that were prepared for the pandemic, right? They had savings, they, their company was, was able to innovate and get around it. And it's a, a healthy sector through time of turmoil, right? So it's like, who do you want to help you? It's like, well, that one group sounds like I want to go work in that industry, right? So the thing with the airplanes, for example, or like the airplane sector, um, is like those assets were all bad. Like it was all, those companies were all bad. They had no operating or they had no cash reserves to to come in and and pay their staff while no operations are taking place, right? They're just they have to. And what happens if they declare bankruptcy, right? They have to lay everyone off and then liquidate all their assets. Well, who buys all their assets? And uh, like we like we said on this podcast, 
the airplane industry is not going away. <laughs> so the, the person that steps in and buys up the assets, hires the people in that sector is the person who was prepared in for some reason was prepared either through luck or had a had a good idea of what risks there are in life you know you have to have a, a rainy day fund essentially so who do you want that person to step step in and what happened was the person with the money printer and who won the popularity contest stepped in and said i got this guys and and <laughs> took away the choice right and so, and it seems like that person is 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 like good or benevolent, but it's like we don't really see it. like what we're talking about. That's the real cost. Like that person that who was ready to swoop in and and save the day. I mean, albeit they're going to make a lot of money, and it, it's not like they're doing it. It's not like charity. They're doing, it, but they're doing business. And and honestly, the best way to to help someone sometimes is to give them a job and to to give them that that self that self worth and that value. So it's like that person who is ready to come in and. And, and actually saved the day was set was told to you know just go go away like we, we got this kind of we're gonna print a bunch of money and everything's gonna be fine so it's like that's the implicit that's what happened it wasn't explicit and to that person never got the choice and wasn't it wasn't portrayed that way to them but you know that's and and just to clarify what you're saying is like businesses that had cash on hand or continued to be profitable or were you know more conservative in their like spending may have been prepared to hire people um, and to take off some of that labor force, whereas certain businesses that didn't keep that cash on hand instead were just bailed out despite the fact that they made poor business decisions leading up to a crisis. Right. Yeah. 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 And what we're describing here is what, what has caused the great moderation over the last 30 years. You have <laughs> these boom and bust times that are just completely moderated by uh, fiscal support and monetary support. There's excess cash, and the government's willing to step in when <laughs> your, your industry is going bust yeah. because uh, they don't want anyone to be laid off. So that's causing our what two before this one two percent uh, GDP growth versus seeing spikes of six percent, six percent, six percent, and then going back to minus two, minus two, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It's like if you're in a classroom and you're about to take a math test and the teacher says, okay, you can choose a partner uh, or you can choose someone's paper to cheat off, you know, and it's, it's allowed for some reason. And it's like everyone starts looking around the room looking for the person who's the best at math and they're getting ready to go ask them. And then the most popular guy in the corner says, guys, I got this. Don't even, <laughs> no one needs to make a decision. Everyone can copy off of me. And uh, the teacher says, okay since he spoke first you get to everyone gets to cheat off of him and then everyone's just like all right i mean i'd rather cheat off of someone than than no one but the guy who's actually good at math over over in the corner is like all right well good luck <laughs> yeah i think the one the one government support that is generally good in downtimes is you have a bunch of people in when the, the when the economy's healthy, everyone's presumably working in a healthy, uh, in a healthy, productive fashion. Uh, when there's a huge demand shock, like when we saw in COVID, you have all this excess capacity, specifically in labor, and the government just swooped in and said, "Hey, we'll we'll pay for your labor now." Right. But uh, a productive uh, capacity for those workers might have been on the infrastructure bill that we're talking about now uh, right. 
perhaps working on filling potholes or building airports, something that everyone uses, uh, that's a shared function that no one in industry is really, it's hard to build a business case. That's the function of, that's supposed to be the function of government, redeploying those workers to something productive and the government has a mandate to do. Just to play devil's advocate, though, didn't we kind of start this podcast by saying that demand is going to spike back for things like the airline industry, and thus we're going to need those same employees that we had earlier? Yes. And so the uh, government's kind of bridging that gap? Yeah, just bridging the gap in in the interim. I guess maybe uh, I'll double back and say uh, I I wouldn't want a half-built bridge. (laughs) (laughs) That is sort of a lot of danger, right? The stipulation I would add, it's like, yeah, do all your public projects, but you just got to have a have a real market of uh, lending. Like if you had real interest rates, then it's like, yeah, go ahead. Start your public works project and, uh, and see what happens to interest rates. Like does that bridge actually facilitate pr- like productive capacity in the, in the, in your society? And it's like, then you'll have no problem. That lending is going to get paid off in tax receipts over the next you know, 20, 30 years. But when you have an artificial market for lending, then your public works projects, it's just like everyone's patting each other on the back. Like, <laughs> look look at yeah. all the bridges we built. <laughs> it's just like no one uses them. And, and then right. it's like, good job. We paid off all our bonds and we built the bridge. It's just like, yeah. it's just like a I think another thing, yeah, sure. another thing I wanted to bring up though is uh, we were talking about how like there's costs of uh reallocating labor right not just capital um and another huge problem i see there is i think the cost of hiring these days has gone up tremendously since let's say maybe the 1950s for comparison and that causes so much friction in reallocating labor that there's just going to be a ton of deadweight loss when you have demand shocks because there's just you've built in inherent costs to acquiring people so anytime there is a big restructuring you're just increasing the amount of deadweight loss that you're going to experience as as a result like for example just you know there's many worker protections now you know like there's a lot of liability in hiring someone and so employers really just don't want to hire people unless they absolutely have to and so, and they re- want to do like a lot of research before they hire someone because the cost of firing them is so great that it's just, there's this ton of friction baked into the labor market that I would say didn't used to exist maybe 70 years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh... So what's kind of, what's kind of, your overarching theme of, you know, what is the kind of, impending potential problem when it comes to these logistics in general. So you're, you're saying in general, a lot of these certain businesses that had uh, demand shocks during the pandemic offloaded a lot of inventory. Um, and now that demand's going to come back and thus prices are going to spike. But it's, there's potential that that's just temporary and then they'll you know buy back or rebuild inventory and things could rebalance potentially, but you know we don't know how long that's going to take. Um, is that kind of the overarching theme or is there something that might be more uh, of a long-term effect that you can see playing out? Yeah, th- that's the general thesis. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I'll caution, and this is just Rogo's belief, but uh, 
the, the feds the fed just saying oh we're, we're praying we're, we're gonna keep printing until we hit that two percent uh and that's not gonna be the reality we're gonna go way above that two percent and that that's partially due to money supply uh, monetary supply fiscal support just pumping in more money uh-huh. you're saying two percent two percent growth inflation 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 uh but we're also seeing on on the supply side that companies shed assets due to covid and they're they're not going to build them back in time and as a result they're just going to charge higher prices because demand stayed the same and their capacity is reduced so what i'm cautioning is inflation is going to be higher with, than what they're saying and that it might last for a little longer so it might last one to two years of you know three to five percent price increases versus what they're saying of oh it might be a little above two percent for a year when they're building back up capacity i, I think it's we're going to go through a, a little bit of a longer inflation period than what what you might hear in the media so and do you think go ahead yeah. Jeff. i was just gonna ask you if you think there's like winners and losers to that like these specific industries we're talking about are going to have those huge price spikes where others may just stay steady or do you think that's gonna yeah it's gonna be industry dependent uh and i have more examples and i don't know if we'll we'll have time to talk through those but uh i think the concept's laid out well though yeah um now so on the talk about essentially not necessarily solutions maybe a little bit of solutions but a little bit of like um I guess how you can prepare yourself as well but um inflation concerns me right obviously like you have to uh get your savings in order to make sure that you know you have a little bit more than you thought you did because you're going to take an eat uh, a hit to your purchasing power but one thing that's really concerning to me is it seems like there's no political appetite to meet a serious inflation problem with what I would say is the necessary cure, which is one, let the market, you know, re recapitalize so that it can start meeting, uh, the, the new demand, um, and two increasing interest rates so that, you know, the money supply comes down a little bit and inflation doesn't get out of hand. Uh, I don't see any political willpower for anything like that. And I, the thing that concerns me the most is we might see things like price controls. I feel like there's a lot of, you know, political vigor in that space. And that to me is like the single most devastating thing a country can do to its people is impose price controls on, in markets with high inflation. Yeah, uh, I, I would also agree. Just the, the potential solution, and what I might recommend would be tightening the money monetary supply, mm-hmm. uh, and increasing rates, perhaps winding back or even buying back tre- uh, treasuries per the quantitative easing policy. But uh, do yeah, do we'll, you think we'll price controls are are something? You meant you meant selling selling treasuries. Correct. Yes, you're right. Yeah. 
I, I don't recommend price controls. <laughs> right, but I, I don't think most people would. But do you, do you think like we're 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 in store for that? What it what do you what do you think about that? Uh, I think price controls are usually big on stuff that you see every day. So like food prices, uh, rental prices, even gas prices, but. Uh, I don't think we'll end up seeing that, and okay. I don't think we'll be bigger but there, uh, for that, but uh, there, there's going to be pockets of it, and I mean, you might see like a $800 flight from New York to Chicago, which is a pretty frequent lane, but um, I think it's, it's, I don't think we'll see price controls. But aren't um, kind of all these things we're talking about, like subsidizing these industries aren't these kind of like just backdoor price controls to a lot of these industries yeah but i i think the backdoor price control is so much better yeah than the outright price control because um it it's it's like pushing on a rope versus just cutting it in half you know like like if you right, just right. pump a little money in yeah like that'll bring the price down at a cost to society uh and so in effect it is reducing the price but when you just slap like a price control on it you just essentially yeah. wipe out the supply right. which is so much more devastating yeah it's just like on its face it's just so much more dastardly like it's like you mm -hmm. said pushing on a string versus cutting it it's like yeah i'm gonna just like manipulate the price with my you know with my manipulation versus mm -hmm. like you're gonna set you're gonna charge this price or i'm gonna put you in a cage with a gun to your head <laughs> like it's like <clears throat> that's yeah that's a whole another level of like talk about like corrupt mafia or like whatever <laughs> like um i was t i was having this conversation the other day with someone um but Rogo, you, you mentioned the kind of uh, inflation running hot for the next, what did you say, three to five years? Or no, you said three to five percent inflation for the next. Yeah, one, one, to, demand one spike. to two years. So one I don't know if you years. spend time thinking about, um, or I, I don't, this is just the conversation I was having, but like, um, so with, with a demand spike that leads to price increases, uh, well, price in increases beget inflation expectations, right? Obviously, inflation, uh, <clears throat> witnessed inflation leads to inflation expectations because people are going to say nothing's changing, um, especially during, like, if, if there's a, a demand spike, there's going to be people are going to be like, all right, well, we're in this for a, a good bit. We must be. So the inflation expectations would, would tend to, ride, to, uh, to rise. When inflation expectations rise, then bond yields tend to rise. When bond yields tend to rise, the Fed, who have been who has been setting the ceiling on bond yields um, by purchasing them through open mar market operations, uh, funded financed through printing money. <laughs> uh, when they see bond yields rise, they buy more bonds. Um, when they buy more bonds, they print more money, and when they print more money people see that and the inflation expectations increase so there's like i don't think like i, I have a hard time seeing a, just like a inflation running hot for a little bit because like uh like jeff you said like there's no political appetite to you know to deal with that like the the the, the measures for that 
are exactly what, what to cut that to cut down on that cycle are exactly what no politician wants to do. It's basically putting your head underneath a guillotine, right? To say, oh, by the way, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna you know tighten I'm gonna tighten mon- monetary policy by uh, 25 basis points, and then watch the next day this S and P crashes 15 percent. And you'll see, like, you know, right, and you're standing there saying this is a healthy adjustment. I promise. <laughs> yeah, like, there's no, there's just no appetite for, uh, for like any kind of fiscal responsibility. So I could really see it get getting out of hand. And the key, the key aspect would be inflation expectations. Once that genie gets out of the bottle, if no one wants to reel that in, it's just going to run rampant, and and you kind of, and you kind of lose it. Do you, do you agree well, with that at well, all? Or? Yeah, I think the market's already priced in some inflation expectations. They've uh, the the 10-year yield increased from I forget what it was half percent to 0.7 percent. Right now it's 1.7, and that happened in three four months. It was a very rapid increase. Uh, Still very low yield, 1.7 percent. I I don't know if that's healthy long term, but uh, my message is it still has room. I think it's still likely to go up. Uh, inflation expectations aren't high enough, and then we'll see the yields move, and then we'll see if the Fed reacts. I, I think, to your point, I'm skeptical that it will. They're, they're going to want to protect the American worker. They're going to want to protect investors over prices. Uh, and that's been the case for 30, 40 years, and It'll be fascinating to see where we land two years from now, whether the mindset sh- shifts. But to your point, nothing indicates that it will. Well, well, actually, what will determine Fed policy is if I own uh, calls or puts on the S&P, because whichever <laughs> one I own, it, they'll do the opposite. Uh, so I, it's, it's actually up to me. <laughs> Oh They're God. watching you, Jeff. For the sue you. Powell's got Powell's got a, a phone on his desk that's got a direct line to your broker's account. It's like, what the heck? Jeff just put, Jeff just put in two calls. He's like, Titan. How, how do I short Jeff? <laughs> My only question is why we always have uh, all you, you nerd ass engineers from Penn on the here talking about inflation and the macroeconomics instead of all the the warden guys because engineers are smart not in here talking. <laughs> well, the warden guys are they're making money because they got all the stocks they don't have they're incentivized not to think about this stuff you're right yeah i, I think i mean certain people just just don't think too deep into what they're they're looking at so you, you well, have you're a lot of paid enough you're not, you don't need to <laughs> I, I think the the good finance guys the good warden guys are are, are thinking about this but wow. then there, there's some people the average person doesn't really care about the details and what's refreshing listening to you guys is you, you care about diving deep uh it doesn't matter your background but you're, you're willing Go to on. learn to ask questions and and learn more about what's driving our monetary policy as opposed to just being handed a spreadsheet and saying, oh, go, go find the valuation. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate <laughs> it. No, no, it's good. You guys. You said you had a, a gotcha question for us, though. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you still I have do. that question so, ready? 
okay. I, I have my gotcha question. <laughs> so I'm ready. Uh, so I think Jeff, you talked earlier about the huge cost of hiring employees, and mm-hmm. because you have all, you have to protect your employees. You have, uh, severing co- employees is expensive, but let's talk about the cost of retaining employees. And uh, so. Mm-hmm. What was, so so I'll get into retention in a moment, but my gotcha question is, what was wage growth in 2020? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, a, like to <laughs> is, is estimate? That, this is, did I yeah, fail? Yeah, give, give me a second. <laughs> Just, I'll, I'll say know. like a good estimate would be between negative 10 and 10. What, what, what's the number for wage growth? In 2020, you said? Yeah. Um... Uh, I'll say I, like, I would say zero. I'll say <laughs> I'm gonna zero. say I'm gonna say positive five. Positive two. Okay. And the winner is Dale. It was five point one percent. Wow, nailed so, it too. So you, you so uh, you think about it. We just had the biggest demand shock. We, we laid off thirty million employees, and mm-hmm. our wages increased. Mm-hmm. When, when I when I saw a statistic, I'm like, how the hell did that happen? What does it mean, Rago? <laughs> so, you think about it, uh, your average retail employee, so Target, Walmart, they have to brave and you're at your distribution centers, fulfilling all the e-commerce demand. Uh, they have to go into work and have someone cough on them. Uh, so... <laughs> All, all these places, so your rank and file, your rank and file uh, hourly worker had to brave uh, COVID conditions, and they, mm-hmm. employers tried to keep them. So they uh, their their wages increased due to all these retention bonuses and increased compensation to make sure that they keep working. Coughing uh, bonuses. So, yeah. coughing bones <laughs> also uh something that that made me realize is um their incentives not to work also went up which means you would have mm. to pay them more yep. uh just to right. keep them because they have a higher incentive not to work yeah i keep hearing about that like how like trying to hire um uh like minimum wage employees is just impossible because it's like who in their right mind would give up free money for marginally more money when having to do shit work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of ways to fill your time with bullshit at home these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just find me and me and Jeff hung over on a Sunday, and you can find a pretty easy way to kill a full day of time. <laughs> it involves pork rinds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was the interesting statistic. Uh, that is interesting. Yeah, that is, that is 5% wage increase while GDP only went down 3.5% in the U.S. It was much higher in Europe and uh, uh, some oil-dependent countries like Mex- uh, Russia or Brazil. But the uh, U.S. is only minus 3.5% and the projections are for it to grow 5 to 6% this year. Mm. Mm. But then you have countries, uh, I, I forget, but 
I want to say Japan that contracted three to four percent this year and then are only projected to increase by two percent this year mm-hmm. so, so, so there, there are countries out there that aren't going to fully recover in 2021 uh, and a, a lot of what I'm reading in the media is that uh, and this there's probably an element of truth here that our bounce back is exceeds our decline last year as a result of these monetary and fiscal actions just artificially creating demand and then the demand comes and uh, that, that's creating the GDP growth. But th- th- those are interesting things to read in a mm-hmm. report I recently read. Here's an unrelated question, well, somewhat related. Are you like long run bullish on the United States? Um, and if yes or no, how does that compare in relation to, let's say, other uh, major powers like the eurozone russia china stuff like that you're saying stocks in the stock market the US no stock no market? no not not stocks just the, just like, like as being power a, rankings no just like economy. as being a, a a good place to do business like right now the u.s developed many of the you know vaccines there's still a ton of innovation here um you know I, we're just we're still pretty much an ec- economic powerhouse in many ways um, and I wonder, do you seeing, do you see the U.S.'s economic, essentially, power in a sense of innovation, productivity growth, all those sorts of things? Are you long-term bullish or bearish on that for the U.S.? And how does that compare to, like, I guess, other countries? If you think like they're doing things better or not worse than us, yeah, or do you not uh, think about that? Uh, no, I'm still long-run, long-term bullish on the U.S. Uh, but I mean, especially compared to Europe, I think Europe is has struggled as a result of the pandemic, and I think the U.S. will relatively outperform them. But you have your developing nations that are going to see greater growth, and likely uh, the ones with their act that have their governments that have their act together will see greater growth. And I'm not good at picking winners and losers in terms of <laughs> stable governments, but. Uh, <laughs> Long term, I, I think I think the U.S. will be good, uh, but uh, you compare that. Uh, I, I always say twenty, thirty years. The U.S. That, that's a good investment horizon. Horizon, but if you tell me a hundred years, uh, you, you guys have. I, I always see a, a monetary uh, a, a crash of the U.S. dollar, and mm-hmm. I think you guys have covered all that. I, I wouldn't invest for a hundred year time horizon, but you might somewhere between 50 and 100% safe that uh, I, I would bet on heads and heads might come <laughs> up that we'll be safe in 20 to 30 years. Interesting. It, what, what are your guys' thoughts? Well, before uh, before we go, I just want to, I, I don't know if, it, if that's just kind of you kind of zooming out and saying just in, in like a long enough time scale you don't really see such drastic thing things happening so fast in our kind of early careers or is there something specific you see not happening for like a 20 30 50 year years at like what's different about 50 years as opposed to 20 years in your mind to make that distinction i, I think like one of the measures i look at is our, our interest payments as a percent of of tax revenues 
uh, and I don't, and I don't think that's in a dangerous spot yet, but it will be, uh, and I think that might take 20 to 30 years to manifest. We, we always look at GDP as a percent of, of uh, debt as a percentage of GDP. Yeah, and it's at, it's over 100 percent now. Yeah, it's like 120. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, but it's, it's what's a more relevant ratio is uh, the ratio of GDP yeah, to uh, yeah, interest. Yeah, you yeah, have GDP at so a hundred percent. So, so uh, we take twenty percent of that as taxes, and then we're our interest rates are at let's call it three to four percent on treasuries. That's very conservative. Uh, three to four percent on a thirty year. A thirty year is still under two percent, right? We'll, we'll use whatever number. So two percent is our thirty year. Yeah. And you take two percent of one twenty. We can make our interest payments for a while. Uh, so I, I think it's twenty thirty years until we're we're coming close to being maybe getting dangerous on our interest payments. So so that's why I say that. Okay. Right, that, that's right. a good. Um, so I think that's the trigger versus he, looking at debt to GDP. Right. I think that's a fair analysis. I agree uh, that the relevant metric is tax revenue compared to interest expense, just like almost like a bean counting uh, uh, accounting exercise. Um, but here's where uh, I think there's a monkey in in that monkey wrench. Uh, what's the monkey wrench in that <laughs> uh, in that situation? Is um, most of our debt is in one to two year bonds that we just continuously roll so essentially the the interest rate on our debt is adjustable rate in 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 a sense because it's mostly one to two year maturity and we always just roll and, them over <laughs> yeah and we just roll it over right so if we ever did see a spike in interest rates i i think that could rapidly collapse the entire system uh, and so I don't know what it would take to do that because if COVID plus $7 trillion worth of you know money printing can't really budge interest rates to a significant degree so far, like to me, like if you had asked me that was going to happen in 2019, if you told me 2020, you know, we're going to have 30% reduction in GDP and we're going to print $7 trillion to make up for it. And you asked me, you know, how are long-term interest rates affected? I would say they would be at like 10% or something, right. you know, uh, and they're not. So, you know, I tend to overestimate, I think, uh, how that will impact long-term interest rates. But, you know, it, there's always that possibility that they could go up. I don't know why. I don't know what would cause it at this point because this seemed like a pretty devastating event. Um, but I just think we're in such a precarious position that's why I'm sort of bearish on the U.S. government or the, just the current system. Like, I feel like some sort of restructuring is due, I think, in our lifetime. Yeah, we could be like Russian, just default. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but that, you know, that's not without its consequences, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm right there, too. Like, I, I appreciate that answer because that's like, that is the calculation that needs to happen. You know, what? for the government 
programming to be solvent, you know, handling that inter those interest payments, which is such a large percentage of, of our net expense offset by tax receipts. You know, you can kind of play that game and see, see what it looks like in steady state. I just agree with Jeff. I think that within the 20, 30 year time horizon, there are so many destabilizing forces that could throw it out of steady state that you net now it's just like a whole new ball game. Either interest rates at 10%, you know, now interest is whatever, 10 times what it was before, or uh, inflation is, is running crazy hot. And, uh, you know, it, so interest rates are still low, but the government has to, uh, you know, have 10 times the expenditure on, uh, you know, public spending. So it's just, there's so many things that, and I did, and that's just what I was trying to explain before with like that vicious cycle. It's just like whatever the Fed tries to do to like plug one hole, just like 10 more are going to like spring open. So I just see so much destabilization potential. Um, so I think, I think I'm within the, I'm within the 2030 year to see that kind of uh, dollar collapse. Two horizon. more bearish guys. Does it make you more comfortable uh, knowing that like a large portion of our the government's debt is held by U.S. citizens. Less comfortable. Uh, no, I think I think that's less. Yeah, I'm less comfortable. With that. <laughs> yeah. I, Why is that? Because like the default the, scenario. They live closer to me. <laughs> in in the, in the case of a default. In a default scenario, that's our parents and grandparents right. holding those right. assets, and they're they're like getting they're, told yeah, you're not getting paid anything. Like their pensions. So they're out like, homeless. It's like, oh right. wow, we're gonna put our parents out homeless, or we're gonna. Right. send our kids into the crippling debt like it's like who you know pick your poison kind of thing like for better or worse you know i'm pretty confident in our military to like defend us if we default on some debt and some other country has some anger with that <laughs> um so i would actually sure i don't know it's not either way they're that's all it's, just it's people it. getting that's, affected that's Right, but that that's speaking the as though the default scenario defaulting on our debt is like the only likely outcome is kinda of what you're Well like the alternative is to inflate it away. Yeah. Which is worse in my opinion. I would rather it we default on it. I would actually I would yeah, I would say that um, a military some kind of military skirmish is more likely in the event that we uh, that we don't default that we continue what we're doing right now is propping up our um, like assets at a, at the risk of de devaluing the dollar because what's going to happen. So on the global stage, the dollar is very important. It's the, it's the reserve, it's the world reserve currency, right? So if, if international transactions become a lot less efficient and the world goes into a global depression, there is a very like, if we just continue what we're doing right now, so there's no throw up our hands, oh, default, you know, we can't do it anymore. Like, we just continue with our process of devaluation um, at an accelerated pace. The world can actually look to us and say, hey, you're screwing it up. Like, we're, you're screwing up the whole system through your, and they could call us currency manipulators, for example. It's like, people have gone to war for less, <laughs> right? So, currency manipulation is no joke, and that would actually be more of a, a means to, to, um, that would actually be a more of a reason to go to like a, a military, to, um, like I said, skirmish than uh, if we throw up our hands in default, it's like, well, we just saved the dollar essentially. And that's all the world care about, cares about. We're not exporting anything. Right. <laughs> we, right. all, the, all they want from us are, are green pieces of paper. And if we don't devaluate those, then it's like, 
no one has a problem with that. It's just yeah, we and, are now screwed because none of our assets are worth anything because the they're all paper assets. You guys do, and the problem isn't only the U.S. It's it's everywhere, Europe, uh, and if one of those folds before us, then uh, mm-hmm. we're right. still screwed because we have right. a ton of investors investing in India, China, wherever with all these absurd uh, leverage and monetary stimulus. I'd like to pick your brain on Bitcoin, just because we got into the topic of, uh, you know, fiat destabilization and stuff like that. And mostly I just want us to be able to put it in the title so that our views go up. Yeah. But I'd also like to get... We brought on Rogo to talk about Bitcoin. What's the question? Right. (laughs) So what do you think of Bitcoin? What's your question? Bullish, Are bearish, on Bitcoin. Bitcoin specifically, or just uh, I don't know what. what uh, okay, let me phrase it this way. Um, do you view cryptocurrencies as a potential alternative to the current monetary system of like fiat currency? Um, do you have like pr- um, like? Are you bullish on the price target of Bitcoin? Anything like that? So essentially, the CEO of Coinbase. I, I watched like his interview on CNBC one day. He's like. Stop telling me what Bitcoin is in terms of dollars. Tell me how much it is in terms of Maseratis. <laughs> how many Maseratis can I get with my Bitcoin? So until we get to that point, I, I, <laughs> we, right. we're comparing it to the dollar. And right. people say, well, I, I think if we just use it as a store of value, it could be great. Mm-hmm. But if we're comparing it to, if we're using our dollars as a store of value and demand for I don't see demand for Bitcoin diminishing. I, th- I think it's going to continue to get greater acceptance. So the, the price might in the long term increase, but that doesn't make it a good store of value. We want something pretty stable for that. So I don't think the dollar's function as a store of value is going to decrease in the near term, but uh, I, I do see Bitcoin's potential value going up. Uh, and that's because it's benchmarked against the dollar, and so that, that's just my point of view. Not that I'm investing in Bitcoin or recommending that you invest in Bitcoin, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think it's a good replacement yet. <laughs> Twitter just keeps recommending people to me that say nothing but like. Yeah, with laser eyes. Like my whole feed is like Star Wars at this point, of just like, or like Superman with heat vision, and it's just like, whatever you do, don't buy real estate or food or shelter or just like they're like only buy Bitcoin. That's all. Like that's all I ever see people saying. Like buy nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like CrossFit. There's people that talk a lot about Bitcoin are only bullish on it. (laughs) Right. Well, let's change it's that because like, I have a lot to say. We, we should probably do a whole other episode on it because I, just listening, I I won't go into everything right now, but but I, all I want to say is that little pithy remark that he made about the Maseratis, probably just to like win the favor of like Wall Street bets or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. that's, a seri- that's a serious downside of, of Bitcoin. Yes, tell me the price of Maseratis in Bitcoin, right? And don't tell me the number of dollars 
uh, worth of Bitcoin a Maserati is. Tell me the number of Bitcoin a Maserati is. At that point, okay, Bitcoin is now serving as that medium of exchange. Uh, if you say it's worth sixty thousand dollars payable through Bitcoin, yeah, in the amount that is equal to sixty thousand dollars, right? Well, that's not Bitcoin then. You're not paying for it in Bitcoin. You're using Bitcoin to transfer, you know, transfer the the capital. But yeah, right. th- they're dollars that you're transferring. That distinction is so subtle um, that it's worth reiterating, but it's so important because what John is essentially saying is the price of the thick good is in dollars and they're just willing to accept the current market rate of Bitcoin to dollar, you know, exchange instead. Um, but you can't price something in two different um, goods or currencies. And the reason you can't do that is because you've created an arbitrage opportunity for anyone like paying attention to your like you essentially have to keep right. those two prices constantly updated with each other or you've created right. arbitrage opportunities for people. Right. And so you can only price your good in one thing. And let's be real, everyone's going to pick dollars. Like yeah. I don't I, I I don't think there's a single example of anyone pricing anything. Exactly. That I that I know of. Right. So yeah, so it's just kind of taken as like a given that it's like oh people are adopting like oh we see bitcoin becoming more and more adopted as more and more people switch to laser eyes on their Twitter portfolio, Twitter <laughs> profile, and uh, switch their 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 pro their uh, portfolio. Jesus, that was tough to say. Profile no, no, and it's portfolio. Jeff that was adopted. <laughs> What's that? Excuse. You're mistaken. It was Jeff that was adopted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? Not Why adopted. did you have to do me Jeff's like that? <laughs> but uh. Yes, people are people just take it as given that transferring their profile to laser eyes and transforming their portfolio <laughs> to ninety nine percent Bitcoin. It's like, yep, I've adopted Bitcoin. It's like, no, you haven't adopted Bitcoin until you've transferred all of your asks for all the goods that you provide into Bitcoin. And once you've denominated that, Jeff, you, you nailed it. You've just taken a very inefficient way to run business where the arbitrageurs are going to come in and price your goods in dollars and transfer into Bitcoin. So it's just like, uh, yeah, that's uh, all right. Anyway, that's a great combo. Rogo, any, uh, any concluding thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything you uh, want to get Anything out? Anything you want to plug? Plug to our massive audience. They could find me. Yeah, where at, can uh, our viewers find you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fall down this track. But I, I will say my, my my favorite bar in Chicago is Richard's Bar. And, uh, <laughs> Give me your home address. Only so fans. You, you can find me at Richard's Bar in Chicago on a on a Saturday. <laughs> find me at Richard's Bar on a Friday. <laughs> That is the best answer to that question that I've ever heard. Oh, man. All right. Action items for the audience. Buy your flights to Key West now. Prices are going to go up. And That's make awesome. sure your employers gave you that 5% wage. <laughs> That's awesome. Where can, where can they find you? I'll probably be at the bar. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Great. Great conversation. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, Rogo. Thanks, buddy. Of course. Thanks for doing less. <laughs>